It is great to be back in Beijing and to be with you. Uh, as some of you all know, um, those of you who are still here after we left a couple of years ago, Iris and I work with a, uh, a Christian organization called Pioneers International that has a number of staff uh, around the world, and we were asked to come and help encourage and coach and uh, try to support uh, them and some of the ministries. So we do quite a bit of traveling in East Asia and a couple of other places around the world. Uh, we're on a seven-week trip here to uh, Asia. We'll be in Beijing about another 10 days and then returning to the States on November 1st. Uh, as you've probably discovered, we got at least three sparrows uh, flying around in here this morning. It warmed my heart, you know, when I saw them about an hour ago. I thought, I'm back home. <laughs> we, uh, I tried to bribe Mabel, the church secretary, to find a way to, I, I confess my sins, to uh, poison them <laughs> some years ago, and I think she balked, so and we still can see you still have a sparrow issue here at Capitol. Second Peter uh, chapter 1 and verse 2, the apostle Peter tells us, he says, May God give you more grace and peace as you grow in your knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Well, in this passage and many other passages in the Bible, um, our Lord reveals that it is his desire as Christians that we mature over a lifetime. Of course, our understanding of our Lord begins when he gives us a desire for him. And then as that desire increases and we take steps toward him, we begin to see our needs, uh, our sins, our need for forgiveness. And then he will grant us the faith uh, the, the recognition of the identity of Jesus, the beauty of Christ, the capacity to believe in him and what he has done for us. And of course, the scripture describes that when we do believe, we experience a new birth, that our spirits uh, come alive in a way that they were not alive before, and we can perceive God, we can experience God in an entirely new and fresh way. And then, uh, as we continue seeking him over our lifetime, uh, he helps us understand how to become more mature. The Christian life is a maturation or a growth process, or it at least is intended to be. But as we try to do that, as we try to continue maturing over a lifetime, uh, we can discover that it can be very difficult and sometimes very complicated. Uh, we run into unexpected uh, struggles, uh, circumstances, relationships that make that maturing uh, uh, can be very, it seems like it's very difficult. But one of the ways to understand how the Lord works in our life to mature us is to study the lives of men and women that are recorded in the Bible. Uh, as we look at, observe how the Lord worked in their circumstances, uh, in their relationships, we get some insight into how he matured them, and then through that, of course, we can see some uh, analogies, some insights about how he uh, seeks to do the same thing for us. So in our remaining time, I'd like to direct our attention just for a few minutes to the life of Jacob, uh, one of the individuals in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis, his story is described mostly in the chapters of Genesis 25 
through 35. Uh, I'm going to skip over a whole lot of material uh, because we have a limited time and there's a whole lot of verses and 10 chapters that cover his life. I recommend if you have your Bibles, don't try to follow along because I'm even uh, within a, two or three verses. I'm, I'm just including portions of those verses. So it may be just easier if you read along with me on the overheads and then you can read those chapters later uh, as you want to do that. Well, the story of Jacob's life begins with the marriage of Jacob's parents, uh, Isaac and Rebekah. So we read in Genesis uh, chapter 25, verses 19 through 21, it says, When Isaac was 40 years old, uh, he married Rebekah. Isaac pleaded with the Lord on behalf of Rebekah because she was unable to have children. The Lord answered Isaac's prayer, and Rebekah became pregnant with twins. So we see Isaac and, and Rebekah have twins. They name them Jacob and Esau. Well, in the previous chapters of Genesis, um, we discovered that Jacob and Esau are born into quite a bit of family drama. Uh, their grandfather, Abraham, of course, is one of the patriarchs of the Old Testament, uh, pivotal in the development of, our, uh, of the theme and the narrative of the Old Testament. Uh, Abraham was in many ways a great man. Uh, he listened to God's guidance and he followed it, sometimes making radical decisions to, um, to be obedient in the areas that God was directing him toward. He was highly respected by the people around him. He was a very good manager, so eventually he accumulated quite a bit of wealth. But at times, though, he lied to protect himself, uh, putting his wife sometimes in great danger in some really tough circumstances because he had sometimes he would yield to fear and he just and he would lie. So he certainly wasn't a blameless person, just like all of us. He had his strengths, he had his weaknesses. Uh, Isaac, the father of Jacob and Esau also listened to God's guidance and followed it. He was a good manager also, and so the family's fortunes continued to grow, their net worth, you could say. But he also picked up his, his father's habit of lying uh, at times if he thought it would help him avoid trouble. Uh, he wasn't a very good parent, uh, partly because he strongly favored Esau, uh, Jacob's twin, who was a couple of minutes older uh, than Jacob. Maybe because he favored Esau, uh, their mother, Rebecca, strongly favored uh, Jacob. Well, everybody knows the quickest way to create trouble and sibling rivalry is for one parent to favor uh, one child over another. So uh, that certainly started taking place uh, uh, between uh, Jacob and Esau. Also, Rebecca had her issues, and she taught Jacob, uh, actually modeled for him, taught him skillfully how to lie and manipulate people to get what he wanted. It's very clear in the scripture. And so he developed some very bad habits uh, because of this. He becomes what we would say in the, in the States was a very skillful con man. And it's interesting to see this pattern through a big piece of his life. 
Well, in Genesis chapter 27, we discover how these habits get Jacob into some very serious trouble. Uh, when his father is old and blind, uh, with the encouragement and assistance of his mom, uh, Jacob pulls off this elaborate deceit and tricks his father into transferring the family assets and leadership over to him. And then when Esau uh, returns from this trip that he's been on, he, founds out, he finds out what Jacob has done. He, de is done. he decides to kill Jacob as soon as their father dies, uh, which is probably not going to be uh, too long considering their father's uh, declining health. Well, their mom, Rebecca, discovers the plan. She convinces uh, Jacob to leave. Uh, she loves him dearly. She, she doesn't want him, obviously, to lose his life. So she persuades him to leave, to travel 400 miles northeast to go and live with his uncle Laban, who lives up in what is now Syria. On that trip, when he's leaving for his life, he's fleeing for his life because of these habits in his life that have been acted out, uh, we read in Genesis chapter 28, verses 12 through 15, that he has his first real encounter uh, with God. And we can read in these verses, Jacob had a dream. The Lord stood and said, I am the Lord, the God of your grandfather Abraham and your father Isaac. I will give this land you're lying on to you and your descendants. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. I will be with you constantly, and I will protect you wherever you go until I do everything that I've promised you. This, this is an amazing statement. This, this dream was one of those biblical dreams that's very real and vivid. So Jacob concluded this isn't just a normal routine dream that, that God spoke to him. He had an encounter with God through this particular dream. And this is a statement, amazing statement of God's kindness and his good intentions, of, of his grace uh, toward Jacob. And obviously, God knew that Jacob had some major character flaws and some weaknesses in his life, but in his grace and generosity, he promises to bless him, and despite those weaknesses and problems, and to include him in his uh, bigger picture, in his plans. So we read on in Genesis chapter 28, uh, 20 and 22, says, then, then Jacob made a vow saying, if God is with me and protects me on this journey, if he gives me food and clothing and brings me back safely to my father, then the Lord will be my God. I will give God a tenth of everything he gives me. Well, he means well, and he makes a vow. Uh, and he says, well, if God does what he has said, then... I will do this and that. I will make him my God. His vow, of course, reveals some immaturity. First of all, he's doubting God. He's not genuinely taking God's uh, at his word. And also, you can see his arrogance in his, in his uh, vow. He, he says, well, okay, if you'll go ahead and do this for me, it's sort of like you see this undertone in the, there between the lines. Uh, I'll, I'll actually make you my God. 
if and only if sort of you deliver on the goods and you fulfill your promises. So there's a tremendous amount of arrogance in, in that statement, but he means well. He's trying to respond uh, as he understands God. Well, he arrives at Uncle Laban's, and we begin seeing in, in the following chapters, 28 and 30, that we see God arranging his circumstances to begin maturing him. He arrives there, he falls in love uh, with Uncle Laban's youngest daughter, Rachel, and he agrees to work for seven years for the privilege of marrying Rachel. But he meets his match in his uncle Laban. Laban can lie and cheat in ways that Jacob hasn't begun to learn. Uh, after, for example, after working hard for seven years, uh, he uh, slips his older daughter, Leah, into the marriage tent and tricks him. And so Jacob wakes up the next morning with the wrong woman. Now, I heard a podcast recently in which a, a, a great teacher was talking about that. And he said, isn't in some ways that sort of like marriage? <laughs> we marry Rachel and wake up with Leah. <laughs> Men or women, you know. Now, there, obviously, he meant that in, 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 to be a joke. But although we do discover the weaknesses of our spouse not too long after uh, we get married. But uh, Jacob can't believe it. Uh, he agrees. Uh, then Laban says, well, okay, I'll give you, if you'll wait a week, I'll go ahead and give you Rachel. But you're going to have to work another seven years for the privilege of having her. So he cons him into 14 years of work for the one woman, and he gets two in the bargain. Well, he loves Rachel, so he agrees. So he works another seven years, all the time being lied to and deceived and cheated in all these different ways. And uh, after uh, 14 years, he seems, seems still premature to go back home, so he works for another six years. 20 years he's working for this guy that is a real pain, to say the least, to work for. He discovers in a real personal and intimate way what it's like to be a victim of a lying, cheating, deceiving person. And no doubt he began seeing some of these qualities in himself as he saw this displayed and modeled for him day in and day out. But in spite of Laban's cheating him, the Lord blesses him, continues to bless him, he prospers him, just like he had promised in the dream. And he begins to learn that genuine, lasting prosperity it comes from the Lord's favor and blessing. It doesn't come from conning and manipulation and, and lying. Uh, so after 20 years, the Lord in some way uh, confirms to Jacob that he, to go on home. So he gets the wives and the family, the extended family now, and all this, these flocks and herds and all the resources that they've accumulated over 20 years, and they head back home. So just when he thinks he's out of trouble... Uh, when he's hopefully free of Laban, God orchestrates his circumstances so that he experiences the biggest crisis of his life. So we read in uh, Genesis chapter 32, 3 through 7, says, Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau. He wants to 
alert Esau that he's coming and hopefully make some sort of peace and not just surprise him and, and, and trigger some kind of behavior from Esau that he doesn't want to be on the receiving end of. Uh, so it says the messengers returned with the news that Esau was on his way to meet Jacob with an army of 400 men. Jacob was terrified at the news. Well, obviously, he is in a very bad place here. He, he can't seem to go back. Um, he's, his lying, cheating uncle is all he's got to go back to back there, but he doesn't seem to be able to go forward. The brother whom he cheated is coming, and you usually don't bring 400 armed soldiers to say hello. Uh, he has some kind of an anxiety attack. The scripture says that he was terrified. And so then he turns to God, and in his prayer, we see a very different Jacob than the Jacob that prayed uh, some and made the vow 20 years before. And so we read his prayer in verses 9 through 11 of chapter 32. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my grandfather Abraham. And you could probably say, he said, O God of my grandfather Abraham and my father Isaac, you told me to return to my land and relatives, and you promised to treat me kindly. I am not worthy of all the faithfulness and unfailing love you've shown to me. When I left home, I owned nothing except a walking stick. And now my household fills two camps. Oh, Lord, please rescue me. It was a very different kind of prayer, isn't it, than the one of 20 years before. He isn't bargaining with God. He says he's not worthy of God's kindness and love. Uh, he's not nearly so full of pride and arrogance like he was before. He simply calls out to God in a humble request, not for help, but for rescue. And then we read on. During the night, Jacob got up and sent his two wives and his sons across the river. He, he can't sleep during the night. He's so in turmoil because of what's happening, and he feels trapped. So he gets up, he sends his wives uh, and his sons across the river. He was all alone in the camp, and a man came and wrestled with him until dawn. He was all alone in the camp, he says, all alone. And this man comes and wrestles with him until dawn. Your name will no longer be Jacob, the man told him, after they had wrestled all night long, or a substantial part of it. It is now Israel. Because you have struggled with both God and men and won. Well, in the Old Testament, what's going on here? Uh, in the Old Testament, there's a mysterious figure that occasionally appears called the angel of the Lord. He's not just an angel, but the angel of the Lord. And in the history of the Christian church, it's generally been understood to interpret the angel of the Lord as an expression of God. Very rarely, but on several occasions, our Lord has stepped out of the heavenly places and he has entered into our time and space dimension and shown up in a way that's very visible to the person that he encounters. And that happens several times. It's fascinating to see the 
incidents in which these happen. He, he ex- expresses himself in a way that he can accommodate himself in the company of sinners. And to see this angel was to see God himself. So it says that God actually so condescends that he begins wrestling with Jacob all night long. And he, he even partially cripples Jacob. He touches his hip, even though they're wrestling, he touches his hip and there, he dislocates his hip and he's, uh, he's partially crippled after that. But it also changes, this experience changes him for the rest of his life. And then at the end of this, the angel of the Lord gives him a new name, Israel. He said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, you shall be called Israel. Guess what Israel means in Hebrew? It means God fights. What is, what is that about? If we look into the scripture, what we see revealed in the Old Testament and the New is that God, among his mother, many other great qualities, is a warrior. He fights. He is fighting for you and me. He is fighting for goodness, for righteousness, for truth. In your life, in my life, he is fighting to bring to us an awareness of our needs and the beauty of his provision. He fights for good, for the progress of his kingdom. And we can either join him in that effort or we can slowly and quietly drift into the shadows and choose not to and yield to the weak parts of our lives. Well... Uh, We move on to Genesis chapter 33 and following. We discover that Esau actually has gotten over his hatred of Jacob. He has no intention of hurting him. It's it's 400 guys. I guess he did bring 400 guys to say hello. uh, Maybe he thought, Jacob, if he creates trouble, I'm going to trump whatever he's got going. But Jacob settles back in his homeland. He's a changed man in a lot of ways, though he continues to have weaknesses. And like his mother, he favors one of his sons, Joseph, which creates more sibling rivalry and this whole string of suffering and problems downstream from that. But God even overrules that for good. Uh, Turns it. For this, in, he, God has the, our Lord has the ability to take our weaknesses and our mistakes and our bad choices and our problems and reverse them and create something good from them. And he does this beautifully in this case, and he fulfills ultimately every promise that he made to Jacob. And so Jacob dies contented and a satisfied man. Well, uh, in studying Jacob's life, What insights can you and I gain about ourselves uh, and about our Lord? There's a lot of insights. If we carefully meditate on these chapters of Scripture, prayerfully, carefully, all kinds of insights will jump out at us. So I'm just going to identify three of them briefly. First, just like Jacob, you were probably born into some type of family drama. All parenting can be located on a continuum. Uh, Let's say on this continuum, on on this this side, would be the ideal Christian parents. Mature Christian parents who are loving and gracious. 
They have lots of insight about children and the diversities of temperament. They, they mix a blend of love and discipline. Uh, they are long-suffering and patient with their children. And so it's just kind of like a hothouse environment in which, and I know some people whose parents somewhat approximated that. And then on the other hand, of course, we read stories, these horror stories on the far other end of the continuum of, of abusive parents, sometimes very cruel and abusive parents that abandon their children or commit suicide or do some other kind of terrible you know, behavior, and it deeply wounds that child or children. And so on the continuum, all parenting falls somewhere along the scale, and generally it's a mix of good and bad. Well, our parents, I suspect, you know, mine certainly were. I think yours were somewhere on that continuum. Uh, our parents have, of course, a profound influence on our development, our capacity to do life productively and in an emotionally healthy way. Besides our parents, we have a genetically determined temperament. Other important relationships that shape us for good or ill in certain ways, circumstances and choices, all of that big mix uh, goes into producing who we are today, how we perceive things, how we perceive God. Of course, our experience in churches or Christian leaders can be positive or terrible or both. And so that shapes our understanding of who God is and how he relates to us. It shapes us so much. And then besides all that, according to Scripture, we have an, a dark side. The Scripture calls it our old nature or our flesh. We inherited it. It's universal in the human race. There is a part of us in our spirit before we that retain, unfortunately, throughout life, we continue to struggle with this. A lot of teaching in the New Testament about this that is resistant to God that creates instincts to do the foolish, the self-destructive, the things that appeal on the short term. And so, and so there, Paul says there's this constant struggle after we become a Christian between our spirit, the, the, the new man, the spirit of Christ living within, and the flesh or the old nature, and that these are constantly at war with each other. Uh, Paul says. And so learning how to navigate that conflict and deny our flesh and feed our spirit is foundational to becoming a mature Christian. Um, so all of that is kind of the background. We get that, whether we want it or not. That's what we bring into the Christian life. Um, second insight, and that's, we see that in Jacob's life, we see it in our own. Secondly, another insight, as a believer in Jesus, and this is good news, our Lord accepts you fully, completely. It's incredible news. When we believe, when he gives us the grace to believe, he wraps his loving arms in an embrace around us, and he does these amazing things for us in the heavenly places, in the spiritual arena. He gives us the spirit of Christ to live within us. 
He accepts us fully with a complete and full recognition and knowledge of our weaknesses and our sins. He knows more about you and me than we will ever know about ourselves. And yet, because of the cross, he is liberated to embrace us in a way that no human being can ever embrace us, even the one that loves us the most in this life. Matthew 12, 20 says that Jesus will not break a bruised reed and he won't quench a smoking wick. Now, what does that mean? That means that he cares for the fragile. He loves people who are beaten and battered and bruised and in crisis. He's big enough, he's wise enough, he's merciful enough, he's gracious enough to help us in our sufferings. He desires to bless you and me, to do good for us, but he intends to develop our character along the way. And that development can sometimes be very painful. He's a loving and gracious, embracing father. He can also be like a very demanding coach. You get a good gymnastics coach or a good football coach or a good soccer coach. I, you know, when I, was, I played ball, football, American football when I was a kid, one of the best coaches I ever had, he, would, he was relentless. <laughs> Run a lap. Push-ups endlessly. We, you know, we won every game in which he was in charge. And we lost most of the games because of circumstances when he couldn't show up and prepare us for the game. But he, he, was, a, he was tough on us because he saw what we were capable of what we could achieve with the right kind of guidance and leadership and discipline. I believe the scripture teaches that's a part of God's character. It's part of the way that he relates to you and me. But finally, in the process of maturity, or maturing us, of our Lord maturing us, it may seem at times that we are in impossible circumstances. Just like Jacob. Seems like we can't go back or rather, we can't go back, we can't go forward. And these can be times of deep suffering. But when we can't go, it doesn't seem like we can go back, it doesn't seem like we can't go forward, we're in a great position to look up, to seek our Lord in a way that we've never sought Him before, to experience Him, to encounter Him, and to experience life change, just like Jacob did, in ways that we've not known before. If we are willing to look up and not grind down on our circumstances and, and uh, blame others and, and uh, even blame ourselves. We wrestle with God in these times with confusion, doubt, anger, depression, anxiety, and he wrestles with us. But what is he up to in this wrestling? He's seeking to liberate us in some profound, deep, and life-changing ways. First, in the area of discernment, he's seeking to help us discern who we really are with our strengths and our spiritual blessings, but also our needs, our sins. Areas in which we fall deeply short of God's desires for us. And we also discover who he is more fully and his grace and what his provision for us. Confession. In these times of great struggle, we're in a position to acknowledge our part in our problems, our wrong thinking and, and choices. 
and then to repent. Repentance simply means change. Repentance is one of the key themes in the scripture. And one of my great regrets in teaching here a lot for 10 years is I didn't talk that much about it. Uh, part of what I know you all as expats face, and a lot of guys who work at big companies, is this relentless pressure. Uh, and so one of the messages that we tried to communicate regularly was the grace of God and his kindness, just because you get so much of the relentless, you know, sometimes at work. But one of the key themes of Paul says he's, he has been sent to proclaim repentance. And that means grappling with God so we recognize our part in issues, whatever struggles and problems we have, and confessing those and inviting him to change us in deep ways, to give us the insight to know how to navigate these very sometimes incredibly complicated and difficult circumstances or marriage or job or child rearing or health problems or whatever it is. And he can do that. He says the wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable. He can grant us the, the wisdom that we need when we are in these crises, can't go back, can't go forward, it seems, he can deliver us in his timing. Finally, this, this sermon is partly autobiographical. I'll close with this note. Um, 20 years in China, Iris and I, we raised our boys over here. Uh, first year back, uh, we, we lost four immediate family in a period of 12 months in the process of transition. Difficult, really difficult days. Uh, I saw Iris um, lovingly and graciously serve two dying people 24-7 for eight months uh, in, in a way that was pretty uh, doggone inspiring. And then in the recovery from that, the second year back, which is this past year, um, has been a very significant struggle for us, to be, to be honest. Um, we work with some incredible people. Great organization, but I never anticipated the depth of, of adjustment would be required to move back after living abroad and changing communities and jobs and cities and states and uh, organizations and everything. So during this past year, I found myself feeling a lot like Jacob <laughs> that night wrestling with God. And, and having feelings and struggles that I'd not known at this level before and asking, Lord, what's going on here? That this, there must be some immaturities in me. There must be some issues that I've not discovered before. So I want to repent. I want you to come into the living room and show me what is going on with me. Bad idea. <laughs> I think it's a good idea. Uh, but... Uh, we need to be prepared for the consequences because I've discovered in a, an entirely new and fresh way just how much of a sinner that I am. But also, I think the Lord has helped me to begin understanding the beauty and the magnificence of the cross of Christ in ways that's absolutely life-changing. Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Deborah, Esther, so many people in Scripture that teach us so much about our Lord and about ourselves. So I pray that we would continue our, our study of Scripture and our effort to mature over our lifetime. Let's pray together. 
Our Lord in heaven, uh, I know uh, that this morning there are some people here who are doing well. Life is good. Uh, kids are good. Job is good, even with all the uncertainties and the struggles with living in a, a, a great international city like Beijing. And I know others struggling some, and I know that there's got to be some in an audience of this size that are suffering. And they may feel like they're Jacob. And this dark night of the soul that he experienced. I pray your richest blessing on them. I pray that you would allow them to wrestle well with you. I pray for the grace and the strength and the wisdom that they may navigate the circumstances that they are facing uh, with skill so that they would mature. I pray that you would keep them and me and us from error Guard our path and enable us, bless us, give us the desire to continue maturing over a lifetime and the grace to do that. We pray in Jesus' name.